0: You're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm Rob Matheny. And I'm Philip Overby. And today we've got a special October edition of The Writer's Pit. The Writer's Pit is where we bring authors on the show to talk about the finer points of the craft and business of being an author, where things get a little bloody, a little messy, but luckily, so far, nobody's gotten killed, only brutally maimed. Our guest today spent nearly 30 years in grocery and retail management until finally making the plunge to pursue his dream of writing. As an avid reader of historical fiction, Western, and horror, he combined all three to create his current series titled The Hunger. Book one, Rotting Frontier. Book two, Revelation. And book three, Ripper, were first self-published and now set to be re-released by House of Crimson Publishing. Hailing from Washington, D.C. and now based in North Carolina, husband, father, whiskey and cigar connoisseur, comic collector and geek enthusiast, the Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes Mr. Dave Atwell to the Writer's Pit. David, thank you so much for joining us today on the Writer's Pit. It's going to get a little bloody. I hope you're prepared, brought some napkins or something as we
1: dissect (laughs) it and talk about ShamWow right now, man. I'm sitting on one. Love the (laughs) Sham (laughs) Wow. This is going to be a whole advertisement
0: for Shamwell. (laughs) So we're going to talk about your novels. Tell us about the Hunger series and where you got the idea for this story.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, the whole thing is kind of a twist on the zombie culture. Uh, Basically, it's based around a curse called the Hunger. uh, Imagine that. And uh, what happens is, you know how normally when the whole zombie culture says you get bitten, you give a nifty little speech, and then you turn in this shambling growling snarling thing that has no mind the, the joke is always that how is there a zombie apocalypse because they're slow slow and so out of hand i mean if you can possibly stay in decent shape and have an eight iron in your hand you might be able to end the zombie apocalypse on your own just because they're there's no they're just mass there's no calculation so um i had actually uh the walking dead series uh season three uh when they had the governor and it was like the governor show for a whole season. And I remember saying, uh, you know, it, it's gotten so far away from the actual zombie thing. I says, God, wouldn't it be a bitch if uh, if the governor was a zombie? And then ooh, in my mind, that was my peanut butter and chocolate moment. And uh, I started thinking, I says, man, what would happen if you had a zombie, not undead, but, you know, a, a zombie uh, form, the decaying part of it? But, but somebody who can calculate and plan and whatnot. That would take the whole zombie thing to a whole new level. So uh, basically what happens is when you're bitten with the hunger curse, as long as you feed once a week, uh, you're fine. You actually maintain uh, better healing, better resistance to diseases, better presence of mind. But if you make the morally sound choice not to live at you know, the expense of other people, then you get what they call the rot. And that's basically when your muscles atrophy, uh, you seize up, you go blind, and you basically turn into a snarling beast working off of uh, pure instinct to feed until you finally just collapse. Your organs shut down and you, you collapse. So really what happens is with the hunger curse, it makes the rotters the folks who did the right thing. So it, um, it puts you up against that choice where the, you know, the thing that will keep you alive is the worst thing you can do. So you've got to make that decision of how you're going to, uh, how you're going to maintain, uh, with them being, uh, in the frontier. Of course, you've got the religious aspect of things and, uh, you know, kind of take suicide out of the question because you got to remember back in, you know, the 1800s and everything, suicide was not deemed as the way out. That was deemed as, you know, damnation and, uh, Yeah, I mean, you really got to pose that question to yourself. And, uh, you know, in the books, these guys are actually using it as a recruiting tool, like basically biting somebody and saying, hey, uh, you're one of us now. So you can either join us and feed or you can go be some social outcast and possibly be, you know, uh, done in, or, or you can, you know, join us and we'll, we'll all roll together. And uh, that's another thing where the the whole uh, frontier thing was a good starting point because uh, people could turn up missing and never really be accounted for in the first place, you know. So, uh, I mean, that's where it's at. And uh, the, the good news is, is this curse can go all over time, you name it. I'm kind of exploiting uh, any type of conspiracy theories out there in history and trying to weave The Hunger Curse in behind it.
0: What caused you to decide to initially go with that post-Civil War America for the setting for the story?
1: You know, of course, born uh, in the 70s, came up on Lone Ranger and that kind of stuff. And uh, the old Clayton Moore Lone Ranger and always dig a good Western. And it's kind of odd that right after uh, I started generating a thought in my mind about The Hunger Curse itself, uh, I had one of my favorite movies, The Unforgiven, you know, with Clint Eastwood. And as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, man, I wonder what Clint would do if he was dealing with the zombie apocalypse. And again, another one knows, hmm, I wonder what I can do with this. And uh, yeah, it picked right on up. And, uh, you know, as I worked it, you know, other ideas started popping in my head. And that's when I uh, got the idea for the Jack the Ripper book. Just trying to take that curse and cut it into places in history that uh, are compelling. You know, I couldn't necessarily cut it into like Watergate. (laughs) but (laughs) You know, uh, the Jack the Ripper slangs are, you know, a compelling period in history, be it ever so horrible. But, uh, yeah, I figured that the Frontier would be a good starting point just to get things out. And always go with your wheelhouse. And I enjoy Westerns, so why not start there? And, uh, you know, with it being my first book, of course, go somewhere where you've actually got your strengths, exploit that, and then try to test yourself later on. So that's why I started there.
2: You have, uh, you have three out so far uh, that will be re-released by House of Crimson Publishing. Uh, Rotting Frontier takes place in the Frontier. Number two, Revelations. Where does that Where does that take place?
1: That's still the Frontier. Oh, uh, uh, it's still the Frontier. And, yeah, and what happens is uh, there's a little backstory in that, and uh, the backstory involves another character that wasn't in the first book, and uh eventually he's the one that turns up in uh, Whitechapel 20 years later and he's the one that picks up in uh, river so they're all connected if, if you
2: read Absolutely. them in order okay
1: yeah and you know when i'm done the way I've, I've got things mapped out i've got plenty of fuel in the tank and as long as folks are reading and uh i'm invited on the podcast i'll go right on ahead and keep <laughs> right on getting it but uh eventually what i'd like to do is you know if i've got say 15 books in the series i'd like to get it to where you can actually pull the western ones out and read them or you can read them all congruently however you want to do it but somehow or another have them all twist and turn to where they're uh, actually connected in some way or another
0: and what are your plans for the series i mean you got the you got the three books written now is there a fourth novel in the works or what's next up
1: yeah, sure thing. The fourth book has been done for quite some time. Uh, you know what? With all the uh, challenges that came with switching over publishing companies and everything, uh, I pretty much iced it down. And uh, you know now that things are back up and running, I'll go back over, polish that up a little bit, and that'll be out uh, as soon as possible. And the fifth uh, fifth book's already been started, and the sixth one's been uh, pretty much framed out. I got a feeling that one's going to be a standalone. Uh, book that really happens in modern times and uh, but yeah I've got oh man I've got uh, actually when I wrap up the uh, Frontier which eh, I'm thinking probably about another two books after the fourth one uh, will still be in the Frontier setting but after that I'm planning on tackling Rasputin and because uh, I mean let's face it Rasputin's another one of those guys that I mean they shot him they drowned him they stabbed him they poisoned him they talked about his mom they did everything they could to kill the guy <laughs> and uh, they couldn't do them in. So how can I take this curse and weave it into his history to make it look as if uh, he was infected, and that's how he survived all the time. So uh, the way I've got it framed out, though, it'll eventually twist into a um, World War II setting, and we'll actually find how uh, the Fuhrer was actually trying to build an army all infected with this hunger curse, and he was trying to master it. But it'll all tie together. It's uh, some pretty twisted shit. But I mean, <laughs> hey, that sounds like gotta be. <laughs> we like <twisted> shit.
2: <laughs> we enjoy twisted shit here on the Grim Tidings
0: podcast. Yes. Hence the name, the Grim Tidings.
2: <laughs> so, as far as when you're writing uh, these stories, you you plot out pretty well, or do you? Um, because you do have to do some modicum of research because you're. Pulling from history, um,
1: modicum.
2: modicum. That's a good word. Um,
1: <laughs> Don't get it on me.
2: <laughs> if you're doing a lot of research, does that typically mean you you plot out the the story more, or do you ever pants, so to speak, and just kind of write whatever comes to you?
1: Yeah, with uh, with the frontier, of course, there had to be. Uh, you know, there was minimal. I, I'm writing about a fictional place at a fictional time. But when I did the Jack the Ripper book, the research, the whole experience really screwed me up, to tell you the truth, because it was such a, um, it's such a turd time in history. I mean, if you really dig into it, and you got to think it was only 120 years ago. I mean, it wasn't like something that was going on, you know, you know, around the Magna Carta or something like that. It was, it's, it's 120 years. I mean, that's history at spitting distance. And I didn't realize. I mean, I knew that it was lousy living conditions and whatnot at the time, but uh, the amount of research I did, I mean, it was just such a horrible time and a horrible place. And the more you read, uh, and if you're not feeling it, don't write it. You know what I mean. So you've mm-hmm. got to um, you've got to put yourself in that setting. And man, I tell you what, it was just uh, a period of my life where I was just brooding. Everything was, you know, everything sucked. <laughs> but it was a challenge because I was actually taking, instead of salting fiction with a little bit of history, like I was doing the Westerns, I'm actually salting history with some fiction. So I had to really uh, study up on it and twist the story around dates and locations and people. But I'm pretty proud of what it did because uh, you can actually sit down and watch a uh, Jack the Ripper documentary or something like that then actually read the books and go, Damn, you know, hmm. and uh, I give a lot of credit to my brother, Dan. He does uh, my editing and fact checking and everything. And I got to tell you, this guy, I guess I could talk up about him because he's my brother. But he uh, in the first book to tell you how dialed in this guy is first book I went through and I kept, you know, uh, talking about he unscrewed the bottle, took, you know, took a pull off his whiskey. Well, uh, he sends me a note and says, hey, by the way, dumbass, uh, screw top bottles weren't invented till 19. So and so. Uh, they only had corks back then. Mm. He said, so I, I went through your entire book and I changed every unscrewed and screwed <laughs> to, uh, to uncorked. I was like, thanks. <laughs> yeah. So when the Jack the Ripper book, you know, I was sending him the stuff for that. Of course, he was doing his research on his side just to make sure I had everything straight. And uh, he shot me a message. He said, if you ever put me through this shit again. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that they actually used to have... And you guys could look it up. They actually used to have the, the cool thing to happen if you were affluent back in those days and you had a family member that died, you would take a picture with the dead relative. I mean, that was the thing that if you had the money, so poor folks weren't doing it, but the the affluent, you know, were actually taking these pictures. There were actually brass holes that looked almost like um hat racks where the photographer would take these brass poles and you know twist the arms of the brass pole around and would prop your dead relative up so you can do certain poses. They would even paint eyeballs on the eyelids. And, you know, I'm reading this whole thing and I'm seeing these pictures and they're, you know, pictures of kids and that kind of jazz, and, you know, dead kids for crying out loud. And I'm going... Jesus Christ, how did this place even, you know, what is it like Britain's been in charge of everything but like 17 countries of the world at one time or another? And I'm thinking, damn, these guys are propping up dead folks on, on hat racks. <laughs> Holy shit. But, yeah, it was a very interesting point of history and uh, very dim, just sad.
0: Kind of like 2016.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Kinda. Don't get me started.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah we're, <laughs>
2: we're propping up dead people on uh, hat racks all over the place these <laughs> days. So. Yeah.
0: So you almost kind of accidentally fell into, like, writing historical fiction. It's like you had this cool idea, but now it's kind of propelled you into writing in different time periods. Did you set out and plan to do that, or did that just kind of accidentally happen? Uh, A little bit of both.
1: You know, I I always had kind of a fascination with uh, some of these periods in history like Rasputin, like Jack the Ripper and everything. I mean, if you really look at the Jack Jack the Ripper case, there's really no telling. I mean it and I didn't realize that uh, how dark I mean they actually I've seen things where they've showed uh, at the time people I mean they I've seen examples where like these 350 pound guys are standing in the shadows and cannot be seen So uh, you know I've always been found I'm a big history buff anyway it gives me a shot at weaving. You know, and it's always fresh material. You know, it's something else you can go with because, I mean, after a while, you run out of gas with uh, any type of fiction you're doing. So why not twist history a little bit, you know?
2: You've said you wanted to dabble in different time periods with the, the Hunger Curse. Uh, is there any plan to do any modern modern take on the Hunger at all?
1: Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, that's going to be book number six. That's the one I'm framing out right now. The tentative title for it is going to be Creep. And uh, basically what it is, it's the it um, is, it'll be like the textbook or the instruction manual to The Hunger Curse. It'll take you from the moment you've been bitten all the way to the moment that you rot. And um, basically, if you could think of the biggest douchebag you could think of, that's going to be the character. Take, for instance, like Marsden in, in Ripper. Of course... He can't just readily go out and kill every night in Whitechapel because of the, you know, dense population. People turn up missing. Hey, where'd you see Ray? You know, no, I hadn't seen him. He salts down when he pulls off what he wants off of a body. He'll salt the meat down to, to cure it, you know, like they used to do in private pirate ships and whatnot. So, um, this guy who's, uh, contracts the the hunger my, my idea is that he's going to get it through sharing a needle so i'm gonna like take the hunger to a whole new uh level with that where you don't have to be bitten it's just got to get in your bloodstream somehow or another hmm. and um, this guy is actually going to make a trip to costco or sam's club and get one of the and he's going to be in there shopping and he's going to see some lady doing a demo for those um uh, vacuum sealer machines so he's he's going to buy one of those and some vacuum seal bags so you can take his flesh and do the yellow and blue make green seal it off, frozen in the deep freezer, and uh, that's how he maintains his diet. Much like you know, we put ribeyes and burgers in the freezer. He'll be putting uh, thigh meat, butt cheeks in there. <laughs> mm. Good man. Good old butt Butting cheek. Like good <laughs> butt cheeks. Right. Yeah.
0: So, um, with your writing, do you plan on joining any sort of organization like the HWA or anything like that, or what sort of resources do you use to? Um, kind of get yourself out there to make yourself better as like an
1: author? I tell you the biggest thing for me uh, right now, and I'm just starting out, you know, Riding Frontier was self-published in August of uh, 2014, and Revelations was self-published in uh, two, uh, December of the same year. So far, my best way of getting out there to me has been these shows. Any advice I give to anybody who's coming up in the uh, art, comic, authors, anything like that. When you go to the shows, whatever you do, don't make the mistake I did thinking it was going to be some big financial boom that you're going to sell a million books and you're going to come home, you know, making it rain.
0: You're talking about uh, conventions?
1: Yeah. What you do there, though, that is you should focus more on shaking hands than than making money. And it took me a couple shows to get that under my, you know, under my cap but when you go out and you shake hands and you you show fascination for other people's work which is easy to do when you go to these shows mm-hmm. you'll find that by becoming friends to other guys that are paddling the same boat you are uh, and showing an interest in theirs and showing an interest in helping them they will help you right back you know eventually it, it'll come around full circle so as per joining guilds or uh Doing heavy advertising and that kind of stuff. No, I'm pretty much going word of mouth and just, uh, hey, have you read this? And, of course, with uh, now being with Casey in uh, House of Crimson, I'm totally expecting her to to get me out there a lot better than what I had before, uh, just out of her ability to uh, manage the social media side and whatnot. So I got total confidence in her and uh, her ability to make a lot of noise for the work.
2: What do you think as an indie author people could focus on more because often covers are a big thing and uh, we've talked about your covers before that they're you know really awesome and kind of jump out at you but there's other things that indie authors may skimp on a little bit What, what do you think people should maybe focus on more as indie authors not just getting a good cover and a good blurb and word of mouth but what else can they do to make people connect with it in a different way?
1: You know, for one thing, I mean, I was lucky. I got Mitch Malloy, probably one of the most talented guys on the planet. Uh, I've been damn lucky to have him connected to the book series because, man, what a talented guy he is. But I think a lot of people overdo the covers sometimes. Sometimes I think too much is pushed into the cover. A little too much resource financially and energy-wise is pushed into cover sometimes by independents. But uh, I found the biggest challenge that I had you know, and what comes down to brass tax and going and it all falls back to finances, of course, is getting your name out there. You know what I mean? It's kind of hard. There's really no good place to advertise. I mean, you can advertise on Amazon with the other 8 million books or you can advertise on Facebook. But it, it's tough to get your name out there. And I think a lot of times it's not so much a skimping thing as it's just too much energy is putting in the wrong spots when it, came, when it comes down to trying to get your name out there. It's one thing I feel that you cannot skimp on, that I, unfortunately, with the uh, self-publishing, I had no idea what I was doing, so it made it tough on me, was your typeset, the inside of your book. I mean, the cover is one thing. The cover will get somebody to grab that book. I don't give a damn what nobody tells them. If you've got a a good-looking cover, somebody will grab the book. But when they open that book up and it looks like moss on the inside, (laughs) they're going to put it right back down. You've got to have the inside. You've got to have something inside that just reaches out and grabs them by the face and pulls them in. Don't just slap Chapter 3 on there and move on. I mean, do something with it. Try to get a font. Try to get uh, get something to get somebody's attention. And that's something um, that I feel like I, I see quite a bit where it's just basically uh, pages with words on them. It's not anything that kind of gets my eye. So if there was any advice, I'd throw somebody uh, that you they, they can do for minimal amount of financial commitment would be when you go to format your book, make sure it's a decent typeset. People can actually see it. Keep the size at the uh, standard, what is that, six by eight, six by nine. And uh, don't be afraid to, to put something on the inside of that book that's going to be uh, attractive. Just don't count on the cover to get the job done.
0: So make it pretty.
1: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> make
2: it real, real pretty. pretty. <laughs> but since we're doing horror this month i wanted to ask you a question about horror what are some of your favorite kinds of horror and as far as books or movies or or anything like that and what typically scares you if anything maybe nothing scares you
1: <laughs> it scares me the most is the reflection <laughs> uh to be honest with you the good news about the horror genre that i've really um enjoyed is that I got to be honest with you, I was never a hacker slasher film guy. I mean, in the 80s, you know, they were coming out Friday the 13th and, um, you know, Freddy Krueger and uh, Michael Myers. And don't get me wrong. Those are classics. They're fantastic movies and they were good for the times and everything. But, man, I mean, it's just like, you know, there's all these legends about Crystal Lake and you know about this and you know about that. But your dumb ass still goes and investigates a, a, an odd noise coming from a closet. You know, it's dude, get out of there, you know. I could probably write the script for one of those films in probably about thirty seconds flat. It's talk, hack, blood, boobs, hack, blood, boobs, hack, hack, boobs, blood. That's all they were. But now they've actually taken um and I got to hand it to Clive Barker. I kinda like to say that he's the guy that got the motor turning on some of the more twisted stuff and um the hell, Hellraiser up until they started turning into like police academy flicks, but the first, uh, the first two Hellraisers, man, I mean, the first one will have you sleeping on the couch for a couple of days because I mean, you ain't gonna get nowhere near a damn mattress after <laughs> watching that thing. Uh, The Walking Dead, I mean, uh, I have a little argument with the TV show to a certain extent, you know, with every housewife being a crack shot, you know, 14 year old kids being able to, you know, hit headshots from, you know, 200 yards. And eh, it's a little rough, but I can tell you the comic book is nuts. They, I mean, the comic book will I've had so many experiences where I've just set the damn comic book down and just shook my head like, damn, did I just actually see that? And uh I go back to The Mist. And uh for, for those folks out there who haven't seen The Mist with Thomas Jane in it. I won't spoil it, but if you've seen that movie, you, and there's not a person that's seen that movie, and uh, when the credits started rolling, didn't just kind of sit back in the seat and go, holy shit, man. Yeah. And that's what that—that's what I want to do with my books. I just don't want it to be a bunch of blood splattering and people getting bitten and, you know, oh my god, he's turning. I, I want to get inside of your head. I want you to set the books down and go, damn. You, you know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. Just have that moment of it, you know it may only be for a couple seconds but one of those uh moments where you're like holy shit, man you don't want to be where did this come from so that's why i dig about the horror series now i mean a horror genre now is that it's not all just you know hacking and slashing and, and screaming and, and carrying on it's it's more um it involves more horror and it involves uh more story and it doesn't take gore to be there and i got to hand it rob zombie he's another one it, that Night of a Thousand Corpses, dude, I mean, if you watch that movie and you didn't at least ways get one little damn pucker going throughout that flick, then you just weren't watching it. Uh, that scene where he's got that deputy on his knees and they pan all the way back. I mean, you know, that that scene only lasts for about 10, 20 seconds, but it seems to last forever. His movies are what I'm getting at, where it's just one of those things where it's uh, it's more of a shock value than a war uh, value. And uh, that's what I like about genre now. It's actually heading in that direction. It's trying to give you that jolt, not bruise you out.
0: You mentioned uh, comic books. You're actually working on a graphic novel of sorts, correct?
1: Yeah. It's uh, not to lead too much into it because, you know, we're still in the early stages of it. But uh, I work with a young man named Josh Myers. And, uh, you know, when I first started working there, I saw these little pictures hanging up all over, drawings hanging up all over. I mean, everything from uh, Joker, Harley Quinn, Groot, you name it. And, I got shooting a breeze with him and he says, uh, Hey, uh, do I hear it right? You know, you you write books. I said, Yeah. He says, Well, you know, I'm the guy that draws these things. And I says, Yeah, man, you know, some sharp shit, you know? So uh, as I got to know him and started looking into his stuff, the guy's got a ton of talent. So here lately, he's really gotten fired up about it. And I tell you, he's doing one hell of a good job. It'll be on more of a demonic type uh, plane, but it'll be a more psychological thriller type thing. And uh, we've got some plans where we're actually going to switch from uh, color to just black and white for certain frames and everything. And I'd really like to get it to where I can go, you know, say four to six graphic novels at about, you know, 100 pages a piece. So uh, again, plenty of gas in the tank, just getting the time to sit down and do it. But man, I'd love to get that graphic novel out because there's nothing more. Uh, you, know, you can read something, you got to visualize it in your head. To have it actually there in front of you. Yeah, I think that's what The Walking Dead comic book does a lot of times. It actually kind of gives you a, uh, you, you can read about it all day, but until you're actually looking at it, you don't get it. So, uh yeah, looking forward to this. And it's, uh like I said, it's going to be twisted. And I don't want to so much get into the whole demonizing thing. What I want to do is get in and uh, basically what it is the guy dies. Uh, he actually comes back to watch over his family. That's when he finds out that his his son, who uh, his youngest son, who had chronic uh, issues with sleeping at night, saying, "Hey, my toys are trying to get me." And you know, okay, the kid needs therapy. He needs Ritalin. Uh, he keeps pissing the bed. Blah blah blah. When this guy dies and actually is out there on the astral plane, and he comes back to his house to look over his family, he finds out the kid's not lying that uh there's actually demons that have been trying to possess his soul and are actually after the kid so uh the guy while he's there watching over his family and trying to defend his son from these demons he's got to watch his family deteriorate around him due to his death so you know it's going to get inside your head and of course if you've got you know you're married with children and all that kind of jazz you know your family is paramount and uh you know, just the mere thought of being uh, there but not there, and watching your family just kind of you know go to mush. I mean, just the, just the idea of it alone is enough to kind of give you get, get your hair standing up on the back of your neck. It's pretty grim, Dave. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and it's dark, which uh, you know would be perfect for another appearance on this. When I get it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, we're we're actually changing our name, so.
1: Uh oh, it's going to go to the light and fluffy.
2: Yeah. So if you write something light and fluffy,
1: you can
0: come back on. <laughs> well, folks can find you on Facebook, correct?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Feel free. I also have the uh, the Hunger page on Facebook, and i uh, going to be getting into Instagram and uh, Twitter and all that kind of nifty stuff coming up. I, I totally admit my inefficiencies of social media because sometimes facebook can almost become a full-time job in itself you know for it you know folks constantly pinging you on things so the, the thought of taking on twitter and uh instagram is just horrifying to me <laughs> but uh good luck once again i'm gonna lean on some family and they're gonna help me out with it and everything so uh, i will be getting out there and being a little more social instead of being anti-social when it comes down to that yeah, go through the uh, horror pay or the uh, hunger series page. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of pictures of uh, c- cigars I'm going to smoke. So,
0: excellent. Well, thanks for joining us here on this October edition of the Writer's Pit, Dave Atwell. The Hunger Series, Routing Frontier, Revelations, Ripper, available at HouseOfGrimsonPublishing.com. Sir, it's been great to have you on the show.
1: Hey, I appreciate it, man. You guys rock, man. Have a blast.
0: You can find us online at Facebook.com slash The Grim Tidings Podcast or on Twitter at GrimDarkFiction. Download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean, and if you like this show, please share it and leave a review. Be sure to drop by our Facebook group, GrimDark Fiction Readers and Writers, for daily updates on all things GrimDark. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of The Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time.